Conrad by David Ferring Chapter 1 They came from the west and from the east, from the south and from the north. They came from every corner of the empire, from every land in the old world, and from beyond. Many of them were human, or had once been, but many were not, and had never been. Almost all were deadly enemies. Under any other circumstances, such a rendezvous would have led to instant slaughter, as every warrior instinctively fell upon his ancient foes and sworn rivals in an orgy of blood. Yet they had not come together in peace. None knew the meaning of such a concept. By the end of the day, there would indeed be the carnage that they all craved. But this death and destruction would not be wrought amongst those who had converged in such an unnatural alliance. Not at first. Instead, they would be the dealers of death, the deliverers of destruction. They had but one thing in common. Each and every one of them was a servant of chaos in some form or another. Between them, they worshipped every chaos power. Corn and Slanish, Nurgle and Zinch, and all the other dark deities. They were united for this single unholy mission. A mission of mayhem and of murder of mutilation and of massacre. It was not yet dawn by the time he reached the bridge and started to cross the river. The great moon, Mansleeb, had already set. Its lesser companion, Morsleeb, was at its smallest and gave even less illumination than usual. He stopped halfway over the wooden bridge leaning on the rail and waiting several minutes until the sky began to lighten before venturing any further. Then he headed up the hillside towards the forest, moving as slowly as the sun seemed to rise. It was a winter sun, low and dull. His breath condensed in the cold air and he shivered momentarily. The rags he wore did little to keep out the chill. His old boots were padded with cloth from within, partly because they were too large for him, and wrapped in more strips of fabric on the outside, in a vain attempt to keep out the wet. But the grass was saturated with morning dew, the ground thick with mud, and his boots were still wet from the previous day. He hardly noticed. This was how it had been all his life, or for as long as he could remember. It seemed that from the first day he could walk, he had come here alone, barefoot in the dust or trudging through the squelching mud. It would get worse before it got better. The ice and the snow which were to come over the next month or two would make his daily task even more difficult. He stared into the forest, 
trying to penetrate the thick boughs, sensing what was hiding deep inside. Even on the brightest summer day, the forest was a dark and dank place, where light seldom penetrated. Most of the trees had shed their leaves, but this somehow seemed to make them even more dangerous. Without the foliage, hiding places were fewer, yet the trees themselves became more threatening, their thick trunks and bare branches like some kind of living creature waiting to pounce. All was quiet, but he was not fooled. The woods were alive with all manner of beings, insects and birds and animals, the normal kind of wildlife. Then there was the other kind, the kind which was anything but normal. He was scared. Out here he was always afraid. When he was younger, he had thought that he would lose his fear with the passing years. Instead, the opposite had happened. Then he had been scared of the unknown. Now he knew more of what he might be up against, and so he was even more afraid. Probably that was why he was still alive. If he were not always alert, ever vigilant, he would have been dead long ago, taken by one of the things that lurked in the depths of the twisted forest. None of the men from the village ever came here alone. When they entered the woods, they did so in groups, and they made sure that they were heavily armed. The woodcutters were always guarded when they set about their work, felling a clump of trees to clear another area of forest. But these precautions were not enough. Last year, a group of six woodsmen from the village had entered the trees early one morning. By evening, they had not returned. They never did. All the search parties ever found were a few scraps of bloodied clothing. He blew on his hands for warmth, rubbing them together for a minute. His dagger was tucked inside his tunic, and he pulled it out. The knife in his right hand, the coil of rope in which to tie the firewood in his left, he finally stepped towards the trees on the edge of the forest. Every day he entered at the same point, took the same route. He knew each tree and root, every sapling and bush. If something were not right, he would know instantly. But every day he had to diverge more from his regular path in search for wood. It was always a search. There was no point in breaking off branches, because even at this time of year, when they seemed so dead, they would not be dry enough to burn. He was as much a hunter as those who stalked wild animals for food, shooting the elk or the boar with their arrows. The trees at the edge of the woods were widely spaced. The deeper one went, the more closely packed were the ancient boughs as though they too huddled close for protection from the beings that dwelled within their depths. But such defence seemed no more successful for the trees than it was for the woodcutters, because every so often one of the mighty trunks lay stretched out on the ground, as if a victim of the forest's unknown predators. He had seen the things 
many times, sensed them far more frequently. He had no idea what they were or what they were called, and he did not want to find out. To him, they were all monsters, and he preferred to keep as far away as possible. Neither human nor animal, they were like a hideous cross between the two, as though spawned from some obscene mating. Creatures of fur and flesh and feather, hands and hooves and horns. Yet they were stupid. Their mutation seemed to have bred out all their natural senses. They had neither the brains of humans, nor the instinctive awareness of animals. Many a time he had been within a few yards of such loathsome creatures, with only the trunk of a narrow tree for protection. But they had neither seen him, nor heard him, nor smelled him. If one ever had, then he would have been dead. This was why he had grown ever more cautious. His luck could not hold for ever. His pulse began to race as he reached the edge of the forest, and he gripped the hilt of his knife ever tighter in his sweaty palm. All thoughts of the cold were banished from his mind. He moved slowly, but his head kept turning from side to side, listening, while his eyes darted about even faster. There was nothing to hear, nothing to see, but he knew something was there. Not too far ahead, one of the things lay in wait. Perhaps it was lurking in ambush, knowing that he came this way every dawn, or perhaps it was simply chance that had brought the being into this point in the forest, some fifty yards away. Although out of sight because of the trees that stood between, he could visualize it crouching near the gnarled roots of a forked trunk. He also waited. He had learned to be patient. That, too, had saved his life on many an occasion. He stood motionless, hardly daring to breathe in case the vapour from his nostrils signalled his location, his heart thudding faster than ever, his mouth dry, but his body damp with sweat. The creatures were mostly inhabitants of the night. During the hours of darkness they crept towards the village, searching for any unpenned animals. With the arrival of daylight, they retreated to the forest. But day or night, they were equally deadly. After what happened the previous year, a hunt had been organised to clear the forest. There had even been soldiers brought in. He had never seen such a wonderful sight. They had ridden into the village, the sun sparkling on their armour, their bright pennants flowing behind them. Until that day, he had hardly considered what existed beyond the village. He wished he could have been a soldier. Some of the troops were billeted in the inn, much to his master's displeasure, whose contribution to the clearing of the forest was to pay for their board. But he was delighted, because he could listen to the soldiers' tales of life outside the valley, of things he had never heard of or imagined could exist. He had happily polished their helmets, 
burnished their armour, groomed their horses. Some of them even gave him a penny, the first money he ever owned. He buried the brass coins in the stable, near where he slept, because he knew his master would take the money from him and beat him. And he had been beaten, but he kept the money. He had also kept a dagger, which he stole from a captain who had never rewarded him even with a word of thanks, despite all the work he had done. Conrad wanted something from the outside world, and he had never seen such a strange knife, either before or since. The handle was made of some kind of white bone, carved into the shape of a serpent's head, but it was the blade which made the weapon unique. Instead of having straight sides from hilt to point, both cutting edges were made up of a series of curves which rippled closer to one another until they met at the tip. The troopers had swept through the forest, clearing the woodlands of the creatures, but the forest stretched forever, and before long the things returned again. Now there was one nearby, waiting as he waited. He heard a sound, and he spun around, because it came from behind him, towards the village. It was the sound of a horse, its shod hooves clattering across the wooden bridge a few hundred yards away. He narrowed his eyes, focusing on the rider. It was very rare for anyone else to be up so early. Often he would have collected a huge bundle of firewood and been back in the village before anyone else was about. But this was more rare in winter. However, because of the fewer daylight hours, more people were awake at dawn. He recognised the rider. He recognised everyone from the village. And she was the most unlikely person to see at this hour of the morning. He would have expected her to lie in bed very late, while her father's servants did all the work and tended to her every whim. She lived in the manor-house at the head of the valley. Her father owned that as he owned the rest of the valley. Everyone in the village lived on his land. Even the innkeeper had to pay rent for the tavern. She was dressed in white furs, and her horse snorted as it cantered over the narrow bridge. She halted for a few seconds, looking back in the direction she had come, then tugged on the reins, turning her mount's head. But she did not turn the steed completely and return to the village. Instead, she rode towards where he was. And where the thing was... Although he had been watching her, he had not forgotten the creature. He was totally aware of it, while it, in turn, was totally oblivious of him. But it had heard the rider, and it started moving towards the edge of the forest. The boundary had been pushed back over the years, further and further from the river, to leave a wide area of hillside stretching up from the water's edge. The rider could have chosen to keep to the track by the side of the river. She did not. 
For some reason, she rode up the slope. Her route took her parallel to the forest itself, closer to him, while the thing closed upon her. It was still beyond his line of sight, but he could tell that the being was cutting diagonally through the trees in a route that would take it towards the river. She rode on quickly, confidently. He watched, waiting for her to realise what was happening, to wheel her horse and gallop away, but she kept on coming, as though unaware of danger. What was she doing? Why was she out here all alone? He continued to watch, trying to work out what was happening. The creature was very close now. She would have to flee almost immediately, or else it would be too late. Then, suddenly, he guessed the awful truth. She did not know. She had absolutely no idea what was about to happen. But he did. He knew exactly what would occur. His head turned as he followed the track that the thing must take. In a few seconds, the creature would be upon her, leaping high and toppling her from her mount. He sprang from the trees and into the open, and he ran, dropping the rope, shouting out a warning, heading straight for where the inhuman assailant would launch itself at its helpless victim yelling out again, telling her to get back, back, closing the gap, wondering if he could possibly reach her before the creature did, but knowing that he could not achieve the impossible, because what he had observed was inevitable. She saw and heard him, because she reined in her horse as he sped towards her, but it was too late, already much too late. He had halved the distance between himself and her by the time the monster burst from the forest. Then he saw it for the first time, really saw it, as it leapt into the air. It was repulsive, a mockery of both the human form and a parody of all animals, a huge body, covered in matted dark grey fur, a face like that of a dog, but with horns and long fangs, short limbs ending in claws and talons, but it also gripped a rusty sword. It roared as it jumped, springing up at the rider. She was leaning back, tugging on the reins, and, instead of carrying her straight out of the saddle, the thing knocked her aside. She toppled to the ground as her terrified horse reared up and then bolted. The monster also landed on the soft earth. But before it could turn upon its defenceless prey, he was there. He dived upon its back, his left arm going around its neck, tugging its head upwards and his dagger plunging into the creature's throat. It screamed and writhed as its blood fountained from the wound. He drove the knife into its tough hide again, then again. At each stroke the creature screeched out its anger and its agony, and it twisted and turned, finally throwing him off. It was far bigger than he was, 
even without its blade. A single blow from one mighty paw would have crushed him. He rolled aside as it staggered upright. One forearm went to the gash in its neck, as if trying to staunch the flow of blood. The blood was as unnatural as the being itself, a sickly yellow-green colour. The brute stared at the wetness on its paw, seeming not to understand what it was. It opened its mouth to bellow out its rage, and more vile blood trickled from between its canine jaws. Its eyes narrowed as it stared at its tormentor, and it lurched towards him. He felt the fetid odour of its hot breath, and he gagged. He was smaller, but he was faster. He dodged aside, avoiding the slicing sword. He had seen the blow coming. But what he did not see was the whiplash of the creature's long, thin tail, which caught him around the ankle and dragged him to the ground. He landed with a thud, tried to roll away, but could not. The snake-like tail had him gripped tightly. The creature had become still, glaring down at him, its blood dripped onto his tunic. The liquid hissed as it burned like acid into the worn fabric. He wriggled and squirmed, unable to tear himself free from the snare around his foot. The nameless predator loomed above him, its bulk blocking out the dawn sun. Trapped by its ominous shadow, he felt cold, cooler than he had ever felt in his whole life, colder than he would ever feel again, because surely this was the end of his life. All was dark. He could see nothing, nothing now and nothing ahead, nothing but the monstrous shape above him. But he refused to surrender without a fight. Instead of trying to pull away from the tail which held him chained down, he slid through the mud towards the creature, kicking his leg forward, gaining a few inches of slack, then grabbing the slimy tail in his left hand and hacking at it with the knife in his right. One slash, two, three, three more cries of agony, each louder and longer than the previous one. Then the tail was severed. Blood spurted and splashed over his hands, but he ignored the pain as the foul liquid ate into his skin. The monster lurched towards him, its sword swinging wildly. Instead of attempting to drive away, he sprang upwards to meet it, holding his dagger in both hands, and the thing impaled itself on the point of the blade. The knife sank into the tough hide up to its hilt, and the being's wounded scream was more agonised and fearsome than ever. It dropped its own weapon, and its razor-sharp talons clawed frantically towards him. He weaved away, slipping beyond the reach of the creature's final clawing grab. It slammed heavily into the ground, and the whole forest seemed to shake with the impact. It lay on its side, still and silent. He stood several yards away, also still and silent, ready to leap away if it should so much as twitch a single muscle. Its eyes were still open, 
staring at him. But after a few seconds, they began to glaze over. He rubbed his hands on his clothes, trying to ease the pain of the liquid fire which had burned into his flesh. He wondered what to do, and he glanced warily around. If there were more of the creatures near, they would soon smell the blood. They had no loyalty to their kind, and here was a feast for them. His knife was embedded in the being's chest. He had to retrieve the weapon, but still he did not want to go too close to the monster. He heard a movement behind him, and he spun around rapidly, poised for escape. But it was only the rider, who was by now sitting up. My clothes, she said. They're ruined. She was clad in rare white furs. Her coat, trousers and boots were covered in mud. Would she have preferred blood? Her own? Help me up! For the first time, he wondered why he had done what he had, risking his life to save her. It was such a stupid way to behave, he thought. He had not thought, however. That was the answer. He had acted instinctively, his body controlling his behaviour, not his mind. Did you hear me? Help me up! She was human. That was another part of the answer. All humans were allies against every other living being in the world. Where's my horse? He ignored her and stepped towards the dead creature. He had to retrieve the dagger. It was all he had. She suddenly screamed, and he sprang back in surprise, thinking she had seen the monster move. Is it dead? She had become totally still, her eyes fixed on the thing's corpse. It seemed that she had only just noticed it. He picked up a stick and moved closer again, prodding the creature. There was no response. It was dead. It had not the brains to pretend. What happened? The fall must have stunned her. As well as not seeing the fight, she could not remember the creatures knocking her from her mount. He heard the suction of mud as she lifted herself up, then the squelch of her boots as she walked slowly towards him. He bent down over the creature, holding his breath because of its obnoxious stink. He seized the dagger hilt with both hands and tugged as hard as he could. It would not budge. He turned his head for a breath of fresh air, braced his feet against the dead monster's torso, then tried again. What are you doing? She moved closer for an answer to her own question. There was a slight movement of the knife. He wrenched again. Then he felt a pair of arms around his waist, pulling him, pulling the dagger, and the blade began to slide slowly free. Suddenly, it was out. They both toppled over backwards. He prevented himself from falling and managed to retain his balance, but she let go and ended up on her back in the dirt again. He ignored her, examining the knife. 
The weapon seemed undamaged. He had never used it before, not like this. He had only ever pretended, playing at fighting, attacking logs and ambushing trees. But he had never risked blunting the rippled metal by cutting wood or even stabbing the point into a sapling. He stared down at the dead creature, and he felt, triumphant, he had fought with a being much bigger than himself, and he had been victorious. He leaned forward and carefully wiped his blade on the monster's dark fur. When it was clean, he tucked it into his belt. He prodded the sword with his foot. It was chipped and corroded. He did not need it did not want it. Then he turned and looked at the girl. She was about twelve years old, which was his own age, or so he thought. Her hair was short and jet black, her eyes dark, her skin very pale, where it was not splattered with mud. This time he did help her up, his bare hands around her gloved ones, and he winced as her fingers gripped his injuries. Oh! she gasped, staring at the fresh wounds. He tried to pull away, but she kept hold of his hands. Then she stared into his eyes. He looked away, not meeting her gaze. You're the boy from the inn. They say you can't speak, but you shouted to me. It was a warning, wasn't it? He made no response. He tried to pull loose, but she was holding his wrists. Wasn't it? she prompted. He nodded. You have my eternal gratitude, she told him. You saved my life. He shook himself free. He had to go. He had firewood to collect. He should not be here, not with her. If his master found out, he would be beaten, beaten more than usual. Give me your hands. It was a direct command, the kind he had obeyed all his life. He held out his hands to her. She tugged her white kidskin gloves off with her teeth. Then she took his right hand between hers. She was almost the same height as he was, although her hands were smaller and warmer. She raised his hand to her mouth, blowing between her fingers onto his sore flesh. It seemed that her palms became warmer still, heating his hand as if it were in front of a fire. She said something, a few soft words which were too quiet for him to hear. After a few seconds, she opened her eyes and released his hand. The warmth had numbed the pain caused by the creature's venomous blood. She took his left hand and repeated her actions. He looked down at his hands and gasped in amazement. The wounds had closed up. Scar tissue had formed. They were already healing. He stumbled back a few paces, in a way more afraid of the girl than he had been of the monster. She was unnatural as the creature had been. She was a magician. Don't tell anyone, she warned, and put the index finger of her right hand to her lips. Then she smiled. If you can tell anyone, I mean. You shouted a warning. 
but did you use any real words? Or was it just a senseless cry like an animal? Can you speak, boy? I... I speak, he whispered. What? I speak, he said, louder, defiantly. He spoke to himself when he was alone in the forest, but this was the first time he had ever let anyone else know that he could do so. Until now, the only sounds that he permitted to escape from his lips were the yells of pain when he was whipped. Not that the beatings hurt very much any more. He was used to them. My father will reward you, the girl told him. No! Tell... No one. Why? He shook his head, not wanting to explain, not knowing how to. No one must know what had happened. His master must not find out that he had a knife, that he could speak. He glanced over at the dead creature. A beastman, said the girl. Beastman. He remembered now. That was the name the soldiers had used when they had hunted for the creatures which had slain the woodsmen. Part man, part beast, she continued. There are all sorts of them in the forest of shadows, I've been told. She glanced into the closely packed ranks of dark trees. I hope there aren't any more of them around. None near, he said. You can't be sure, she answered. Then she looked away from the woods and back at him. But you are sure, aren't you? You know. You knew where that one was before it could even be seen. How? I saw. He had seen it. But she had not. That was why the creature had been able to come so close to her. And that he realised, was why those six tree-cutters had died. They had not seen the beastmen when they had stalked them through the forest. The same must have been true of all the others who had been abducted and murdered by such creatures. She was watching him, looking into his eyes again. He glanced away, and after a moment she did the same. "'Where's my horse?' she asked. He turned, searching for it. By river, he said, pointing. Good, she said. I'll be in real trouble if I lose that animal. She glanced down at her mud-encrusted furs. I shouldn't be out here, so maybe it would be best if we both kept quiet. But what about that? She gestured towards the corpse of the beastman. Soon gone, he told her. The creature was nothing but dead meat. Within a few hours the bones would have been picked clean by the carrion-eaters. A few hours more, and even the bones would have been devoured. Will you come with me, to my horse? It was more than a question, less than an order. He nodded his agreement. She picked up her fur cap from the dirt and walked away. He glanced at the sword. 
He did not want to touch it, but neither did he want to leave it there. Some other beastmen would find it and use it. He tugged his sleeve down over his palm and picked up the weapon. He followed the girl to the river bank, then threw the blade into the middle of the river. When they reached the grazing horse, he cupped his hands so that she could use them as a step up into the saddle. She did not move. He raised his eyes and saw that she was looking into them once more. Her gaze flickered from his left to his right, then back again. He stared down at the ground, waiting for her to step into his hands. She finally did, and mounted her horse. He wiped the mud from his palms on the side of his leggings, then glanced at the scars on his hands. When he looked up at the girl, she put her finger to her lips again, bidding him to remain silent. But he was always silent, or had been until this morning. Even though she was splattered with filth and mud, she seemed so poised and elegant. In comparison, he was like a beggar, dressed in filthy rags, yet he supposed that was almost what he was. I won't forget this, she told him. My father can't reward you if he doesn't know. But I can. Is there anything you need? Anything you want? He shrugged, not knowing what to say. He had nothing, but never needed more than that. He did have his dagger, however, and that was what prompted the thought. Arrows he said, and bow. She nodded, the half-smile on her pale and muddy face. You shall have them, she told him. My name is Eliza. What's your name? Chapter Two They were united for this single unholy mission a mission of mayhem and of murder, of mutilation and of massacre. Allied as never before, the events of this day should be recorded in the annals of history, had there been anyone left alive to chronicle such events. By the time the sun had finally set on today's foul deeds, as red as the blood which stained the fields and the crops within them, the streets and the homes within them, and by the time the long shadows of night crept across the scorched earth and the smoking ruins, there would be no trace of any life in the valley below. It would be as though the place had never existed, its inhabitants had never been born, had never lived, the vanquished could never say what had transpired and neither would the victors, because even the conquerors would not survive this day. Once the common enemy was slain, it was inevitable that the marauders would turn upon each other in a frenzied feud, and then the blood would flow even more freely, more crimson and scarlet, darkly shading the midnight landscape as they slew and sacrificed one another to their own lords of chaos. Thus, 
what had occurred would be completely forgotten. Erased from all knowledge, as absolutely as the village had been obliterated from the face of the world, its inhabitants annihilated. No one would ever know what had been, or what might have been. He had nothing, not even a name. It was always boy, or you, or hey, or vermin, or little rat, or some more obscene description. Names were for people who had a real home, a true family, a proper place to sleep, for those who did not live in a barn with the animals, for those who did not have to fight off the dogs for the scraps of meat from discarded bones, bones meant for the hounds. His master treated his dogs better than his boy. Names were given by parents, but parents were something else he did not have. Adolf Brandenheimer was his master, but he was sure that the innkeeper was not his father. No father would treat his son in such a fashion, nor could Eva Brandenheimer be his mother for the same reason. If anything, she treated him worse than her husband did. It was she who used to chain him up with the pigs when he was a child. One of his earliest memories was of crying and of her beating him with a leather strap. The more he cried, the more she beat him. He had learned not to cry, just as later he had become immune to punishment. Children resemble parents, he knew, and he was glad that he looked nothing like the overweight Brandenheimers and their six fat children. Between him and the tavern owner's family, he knew that he could not possibly be related to them. But who were his parents? And why was he with the Brandenheimers? Those were questions which had often puzzled him but there was no way of discovering the answer. No one ever told him, and he had no intention of asking. There had never been any reason to speak to the Brandenheimers, which was why he had never done so. To them, he was merely another of their animals, a beast of burden. Animals did not speak. He did not speak. Animals did not have names. He did not have a name. Many weeks passed, so many that he thought Eliza had forgotten him. Their paths had crossed in the village on two or three occasions, but they had ignored one another, as they had always done previously. That was the way he assumed things would continue, until he heard her horse upon the wooden bridge one cold and icy morning. He was used to being ignored or treated with contempt by everyone else in the village. He was the lowest of the low, and she was the complete opposite, the only daughter of Wilhelm Kastring, the richest and most powerful man in the whole valley. It was past midwinter, 
the second week of Nakhexen. The sun had ceased its southward drift, and slowly, inexorably, the days had begun to grow longer. On each one, as ever, he had been collecting firewood from the forest. For him, every day was the same. He began each day by collecting wood and lighting the fires. He ended each one by making sure that the embers in every hearth had been damped down. It was all he could remember, and all that lay ahead of him. Sometimes, however, it seemed that he had lived out his whole life in a dream. It was as though his memories were those of another person, that he had been told of his life, not experienced it. Eliza halted her mount once she was across the river, and she stared around. It could have been that she was out for a dawn ride, deliberately disobeying her father's wishes as she had done on the day when they first encountered one another. He stepped into the open, even though he had not finished collecting the morning's quota of kindling. He did not call out. If she wanted him, then she would see him. She kicked her heels into her mount's flanks and rode towards him. A minute later... She reined in her horse by his side. I'm glad you're here, she said. Always, he told her. At dawn. This is the first time I could get away. There was a bundle tied to her saddle. She passed it down to him. These are for you. He unwound the linen and found a bow, a quiver, Ten arrows. They were magnificent. They were the weapons of a warrior, not a huntsman. They were meant for war, for killing enemies, not for stocking the larder with animal carcasses. They were all black. The bow was of sleek black wood, the grip bound in soft black leather. At each tip, near the notch for the string, a golden crest was embossed in the wood. It showed two crossed arrows, and between the points was a mailed fist. Even the bowstring was black. The same gold arrows and fist design was wrought into the rippled black hide of the quiver. He examined each of the shafts in turn, taking his time while he tried to think of something to say. They were identical. Ebony shafts, coal-black feathers, Heads of midnight metal. A single narrow band of gold encircled the centre of each of the yards, and the crossed arrows and clenched fist motif was etched out to show the black wood beneath. He stared up at Eliza. All he could do was shake his head in bewilderment. He wanted to speak, and could not find any words. The girl was smiling as she watched him and he noticed her gaze shift from one of his eyes to the other. He glanced away quickly, pretending to examine the perfectly matched feathers on the flights. What could she see? It seemed as though she knew about his eyes. No one else did, so how could Eliza? Then he remembered. She was a magician. They belong to my father, she told him as she dismounted. But he's never used them. 
He's probably forgotten that he even has them. Look at all that dust. She ran her fingers across the soft leather of the quiver and showed him the dirt on her glove. He imitated her action, studying the dust on his fingertips. How are your hands? she asked. He showed her. There was no sign of the wounds which the beastman's foul blood had burned so painfully into his flesh. He had been hurt many times before, but injuries which had been much less serious had left scars that would always mark his body. Eliza pulled off her right glove with her teeth, and she touched the backs of his hands with her warm fingers. Her eyes were wide with wonder, as though she could not believe she had healed him. But she said nothing, and he did not ask. He preferred not to think of it. She asked, "'What's your name?' She had asked the same question on their first meeting, and he had not replied. "'This time,' he said, "'No name.' "'You must have a name. Everyone has a name.' "'No.' "'But what do you call yourself?' "'Me,' he said, and he laughed. It was a strange noise, and he surprised himself with it. It was strange, because it was a sound he had never made before. He had never had a reason to laugh until now. Eliza also laughed. "'I must call you something,' she said. "'Don't you want a name?' He shrugged. He had managed so far without one. Until she had asked him several weeks ago, he had never really been aware that he had no name. Can I give you one? He looked at the bow, the quivers, the arrows. They were the first things anyone had ever given to him, and he was delighted with the gift. If Eliza also wished to give him a name, then she could. He nodded his head. Her horse had begun to crop at the spare grass, and she stroked the animal's neck as she spoke. When I was young, I used to have a friend. N not a real friend. I've never had a real friend. He was a boy who was always there when I wanted him. But he didn't exist. Not to anyone but me. I made him up. I haven't seen him for a long time. She paused and looked at Conrad. Will you be my friend? He looked at her, meeting her gaze, staring into her dark eyes. He was totally in awe of Eliza. They were exact opposites. She had everything, he had nothing. He had saved her life and she had repaid him. But why did she still want to know him? And why had he spoken to her? broken his silence for the first time. She was a wizard. That was why. He was under her spell. She had enchanted him, and there was only one thing he could say. Yes, he said. Then you can have the name of my friend, she told him. Your name is Conrad. Conrad he whispered, slowly speaking the two unfamiliar syllables for the first time. 
Conrad, he said louder, liking the sound. It was a name he had never heard, but a name he had always known. And it was his name, his very own, the name that had all been awaiting him all his life. Conrad, he yelled, raising the bow in one hand, the quiver of arrows in the other. Conrad! The bow and arrows were not as easy to hide as the dagger. He found a place for the bow and half the arrows beneath the bridge, tying them to a ledge under the timbers. He kept the other five shafts in the barn behind the inn, where they would be protected from the worst of the weather. He did not even tell Eliza where he had hidden them. In the beginning he was very cautious, unsure of the girl. He had never trusted anyone in his life, and at first he believed that she might betray him. She could easily tell her father that he had stolen the bow, the quiver, the arrows. The entire village was Wilhelm Castring's domain. The fate of everyone within the valley was in his hands. Life or death, it was Castring's decision. Eliza was not meant to leave the grounds of the manor alone without an armed guard. He was the only one who knew that she did. If necessary, she could ensure his silence, with the evidence of the black weapons. But there was no necessity. He was always silent, except to her. Eliza had used the word friend, which was what they became over the weeks, the months, the years. And he became Conrad. Only Eliza ever used the name, of course, because no one else knew. But that was also how he thought of himself. She had given him a name, and it was as though his life had truly begun once he had his own identity. Eliza said that she had invented a boy called Conrad as a playmate when she was young. In a way, it was as though she had also created him, the second Conrad. Eliza, too, had been reborn, because without him, without Conrad, she would have had no life. Had he not slain the beast-man, the creature would have stolen her life. Thanks to one another, they had both been born anew. The bow was too big for Conrad at first, but in time he grew to match its size. He practised with the five arrows, morning after morning, targeting the trees, week after week, until he became an expert, month after month. The first shafts became warped by the cold and damp, the points blunted by so much use, the flights damaged, but he left the other five where he had first hidden them, although he inspected them regularly, running his fingers across the wood and metal and feathers, admiring the craftsmanship which had welded the three into a single unity. He polished the quiver, keeping the leather supple. He wondered what kind of weird creature had such skin, and he wondered about the arrow and fist design which were emblazoned on each item of the set of weapons. It was not the castring crest. The animal with the weird hide must have been one of those semi-mythical beasts 
which existed at the far end of the world, or perhaps in the next valley. To Conrad, they were equally as distant. Like his strange knife, the black leather and the unfamiliar crest were symbols of the unknown lands that lay beyond the forest, the river, the hill. The thought of such wonders both fascinated him and made him uneasy. He began teaching himself archery by firing his arrows into the tree boughs. Trees, however, did not move. He finally decided he needed a living target to try his skills against one of the inhabitants of the forest. A beastman was the obvious prey, but he did not want to tangle with one unless it was absolutely necessary. He knew how fortunate he had been that day long ago, managing to slay one of the tough monsters with only his dagger. There was no purpose in asking for trouble. If they left him alone, he would do the same. Before he had the bow, to supplement his meagre rations at the inn, thus a rabbit became the first victim of his archery skills. As he became more proficient, he was able to shoot birds out of the trees and even to hit fast-moving targets such as squirrels. That was how he lost the first of his arrows. It vanished high in the trees and he was unable to find it, despite climbing into the tallest branches. He could have lived out in the forest, he realised. If one knew where to look, there were edible plants birds, eggs, seeds. Even without his bow, he could trap small animals and catch fish from the river. He preyed on the smaller creatures. But if he had tried to survive out in the wilds, he would have become prey for the larger beasts that had dwelled in the darkest regions of the woodland. He killed a wild boar, the largest creature he had ever aimed at, it took two well-placed arrows to fell the beast. But before he could reach the animal, it was pounced upon by three pack-wolves. They tore it apart, eating what they could, before dragging the carcass away to devour it at their pleasure. That was how he lost two more arrows. All Conrad could do was watch. He was unable to move in case one of the wolves should notice him and decide he was a tastier meal. He had not even known that they were near. Could he have been so intent on stalking the boar that he had not sensed them? The bowstring snapped several times over the years, and he renewed it, although he could not replace the black twine. Even the bow itself finally splintered and broke, it was black all the way through, not stained with some dark dye. He mourned its loss and dug a grave, burying it near the place where he had first encountered Eliza and the beastman. By the following day, some nocturnal forest creatures had dug up the broken bough, searching for dead flesh. It could have found none but there had been no sign of the black wood. Although he was able to carve himself a new bow, he could not replace the precious arrows. The shaft of another broke, 
which left only one, and the five he had hidden. He could not replace the arrows, but Eliza could, although they were not nearly as good as the originals. It meant that he could save the other five. He was not certain why he was saving them, but he was convinced that one day they would serve a purpose. The seasons passed, and so did the years. Very little changed. Eliza came to meet him at dawn every so often. Perhaps she would be there for a few consecutive days, perhaps once a week, perhaps every month or so. She told him that he was her only friend. He knew that she was his. Her visits were the only things he had to look forward to. He was disappointed when she did not arrive, always sad when they had to part. She once referred to a feast at the manor house, held in honour of a neighbouring landowner. Conrad told her what he had been eating at the same time, and she had been both horrified and disgusted. After that, she always brought him a package of food whenever they met, sweet delicacies the like of which he had never tasted, spiced meats and savoury pasties. Sometimes I think you prefer the food to my company, Eliza often joked. True, he would agree. For the first few minutes he did not have time for much conversation. He was always too busy eating. They talked together, because they had no one else to talk with, and they grew together. Conrad became taller with every passing month, growing from boyhood towards a man. Eliza was tall for a girl, but her height could never match Conrad's, although still slim. Her shape filled out as she developed into a woman. Whenever she was with him, Conrad became less punctual about returning with the morning's firewood. He preferred to spend more time with Eliza and risk the anger of his master. Sometimes he did not even bother taking back any kindling. One morning he noticed the innkeeper's expression as he swore at Conrad, beating him for returning both late and empty-handed. He had always believed that his master hated him, but the look in his eyes that morning was not of hatred. It was of fear. Until then, Conrad had still been scared of the landlord, but not any more. Brandenheimer's whip had even less effect on Conrad's broader, stronger back, and the regular beatings became little more than a meaningless routine. Conrad knew that his life would not continue like this forever. The past had been the same, but the future would not be. He could not foresee what would happen, yet he was convinced that something would occur. It might not be soon, not that year, perhaps not even the one after, but he was positive that everything would change. I asked my father about you, said Eliza. No matter the time of year, Eliza always wore a cloak. She would spread it on the ground, so that her clothes did not become soiled by the dirt or stained by the grass. Dirt and stains, however, 
made little difference to the cast-offs that Conrad always wore. But this was Vorgeheim, the height of summer, and neither of them was wearing anything. They had been swimming together in the river, and now the morning sun was drying their bodies. The bow lay by Conrad's side. It could be strung in a second, an arrow notched in a second more. The beastmen were fewer during the summer, and it was several months since he had been aware of any in the vicinity. Conrad watched as Eliza continued combing out her long black hair. Asked him what? he said tensely. Who you were? she replied. Suddenly, his heart was racing, as though he sensed that there was some deadly predator lurking in the forest two hundred yards beyond them. He grabbed the hilt of his knife, clenching it tightly. She glanced at him and smiled. It was one of her wicked smiles. Eliza had a streak of maliciousness in her character. She could also be very capricious, her mood changing for no apparent reason. Sometimes she came across the bridge on her horse, then turned back before reaching him. Sometimes she did not bring him any food, and she offered no explanation. Sometimes she hardly spoke a word while they were together. "'You don't know about your past,' she told him, "'but my father ought to. He knows everything that happens in the valley.' She studied Conrad, then added, or almost everything. Conrad's heart pounded, and he could feel the blood pulsing through his veins. His body was damp, and not with river water. Although he wanted to hear what Eliza had discovered, equally, he did not want to know. This was something they had discussed several times, the way that Conrad could not possibly be one of the innkeeper's family. But who was he? No one else in the village had someone who was treated so badly, like a slave. Even Wilhelm Kastring, the wealthiest man in the region, employed all his servants and paid them a wage. He did not own them. Conrad said nothing, waiting for Eliza to continue. But she was teasing him, waiting to be prompted. And? he demanded anxiously. What happened? What did he say? He asked how I knew about you. I said I'd seen you in the village, that you were treated like some kind of animal. I wondered why, and, and who you were. What did he say? He said I was to keep clear of you, that I shouldn't speak to you. I told him that you couldn't speak. When he asked how I knew, I said it was well known that you were dumb and stupid. Her eyes sparkled with amusement. What else? Eliza frowned, becoming serious. It's odd, because when I pressed him more, he became very uneasy. It was almost as if he was... scared. He didn't want to answer. He warned me again that I should avoid you. She forced a laugh. I always obey my father. That's why I'm not here. Conrad dug his dagger angrily into the dirt. He wished that Eliza had not asked her father. 
wished that she had not told him, not that she had really told him anything at all. Such lack of information was somehow worse. From his reaction, it seemed that Wilhelm Castring did know something. Scared, Eliza had said, and that was similar to what he had seen in Adolf Brandenheimer's expression. People in the village avoided him. They always had. Could that be out of fear, not contempt? And if so, why? Eliza put her hand on his arm, but he shrugged her off. Don't be angry, she said. I wasn't expecting that kind of response from him. I'll be prepared next time. I can usually get around my father. I'm his favourite daughter. Eliza was Castring's only daughter. She had three elder brothers. There's more, she added. The next day, he asked me about the bow and quiver of arrows I gave you. What? He knows? No, Eliza shook her head rapidly. He doesn't know you have them. He must have gone down into the cellars looking for them. That's one of the places where I used to play. They were hidden in a small room. The only things there. The lock had rusted away. That was how I found my way in. What did you say? I said I didn't know what he was talking about. I didn't know anything about bows and arrows. That he should ask my brothers. She shrugged. It's just a coincidence. Conrad glanced at the last black arrow, at the tiny crest carved out of the gold band. Don't worry, Eliza said. He knows nothing. He'd forgotten all about them. Until you mentioned me, he shivered, and not because he was cold. She moved behind Conrad and started to comb his hair. He tried to block all thoughts of the black weapons from his mind, instead remembering when Eliza had originally combed his hair. That was after they had been in the river together for the first time, almost in this exact spot, downstream and out of sight of the village. It was the summer after he had saved her from the beastman. Conrad had always hated the water and avoided it, but the girl had persuaded him to shed his clothes and enter the river with her. She was always very persuasive, and still was. Because of her, he had learned to swim. I've not seen you without any dirt before. You're quite good-looking, she had told him that day, after they emerged from the water. Then she laughed and added, For a peasant. She had examined his body, running her fingers over the pale scars on his back and on his limbs. Was that the innkeeper? Did he do that? Or his wife? Or his children? These are too old for me to heal, she said. I can't do that. Yet. He looked at the girl, waiting for her to continue. But she simply smiled and put her index finger to her lips, then reached for the, her comb. She dragged the comb through his knotted hair. It was the first time it had ever been combed, 
She was treating him like a doll, he realised, like her imaginary Conrad. But he did not mind. He enjoyed every moment of her company. For the first time in his life he was not alone, and every dawn he hoped for her return. When they parted that day, he rolled in the filth, tangling his hair and dirtying his face. He had not wanted his master to know that anything out of the ordinary had happened. Nowadays, however, he returned to the tavern neat and clean, although still clad in rags. He no longer cared. There was nothing that Brandenheimer could do to him that he could not take. That day on the river bank was also when Eliza first mentioned his eyes. He had been aware of her looking at them on several occasions, and he had always turned away. You have the strangest eyes, Conrad, she had said. Immediately he had shielded them with his hands, even though it was a futile gesture. It was far too late. And she was a wizard. She could see through his hands. You shouldn't hide them, she said tugging his protective palms away. "'What do you know about my eyes?' he asked, pressing his face closer to hers than ever before, staring deep into her dark eyes, almost as black as her hair, as black as the arrows she had given him. "'What can you see?' "'What can you see?' she echoed. "'Nothing,' he asserted closing his eyes as tightly as he could. Everything, he whispered. She had never referred to his eyes again. Until today. Everything was exactly the same, almost. The time, the place, all that was changed was them. They had both grown physically as well as emotionally. They were closer than ever, knew the other better than they did anyone else. But they were also further apart, aware of how separate they were in all things except their friendship. You have the strangest eyes, said Eliza, again. In so saying, she broke their unspoken pact. He had never mentioned her magic, the minor feats of wizardry that she could perform with such apparent ease, and she had never mentioned his eyes, or more particularly, his left eye, his blind eye. Chapter 3 No one would ever know what had been, or what might have been. The future of the whole world lay in a combination of minor factors, all relatively trivial when compared to the greater whole. But each of these insignificant elements comprised a part of the overall scheme of things, and few could say which would prove more important in the centuries to follow. After today, the world would continue on its ordained path, towards the ultimate triumph of chaos. Another obstacle on that glorious route would have been eradicated as surely as the village itself had been totally eliminated.
Most of the attackers knew not what the effect of their raid would be, or why it should occur. Neither did they care. For the vast majority, all that mattered was the conflict itself, the battle that was to come. Even if it were no real battle, but more akin to the gory work of a butcher in a slaughterhouse, it made no difference. The end result was the same. Pain and agony, torture and death. Death of one's enemies, one's allies, one's self. All were aspects of the same eternal war. The one certainty in life was ultimate death, and in this the brutal invaders would not be disappointed. They lived for death, and they must die. Conrad could not see what Eliza could see, what everyone else could see. He could not see his own face, his own eyes. That was what she had meant by him having strange eyes. She was referring to their appearance, although she may also have meant more. Eliza's own dark eyes were deep whirlpools, and with them she could see far more than she ever told him, just as he could see far more than he had ever revealed to her. The following day Eliza returned, and she brought a mirror. She came soon after dawn as ever. There was seldom anyone else around so early, at least in this vicinity. The area where the beastman had been killed was now in a clearing, the forest having been pushed back over the years by the tree-cutters and woodsmen. Eliza and Conrad met further away from the bridge, where there was less chance of them being seen by anyone from the village. "'You've never seen yourself, have you?' she said, as she gazed at her own image in the mirror. She pushed a lock of jet-black hair away from her forehead over her left ear. Here. She held the mirror towards him. But be careful. I don't want your ugly face cracking the glass. He was not really listening to her words. All his attention was focused on the thing she held in her hands. It was oval in shape, framed by what seemed to be a silver border. Even the handle and backing were of silver studded with glittering red and yellow pieces of tiny glass. He saw the sky reflected in the smooth glass as she offered him the handle. What? he said, not accepting. <laughs> it was a joke. She pushed the mirror towards him even more. A joke? He drew back further, shaking his head. An ugly face is supposed to break glass. The mirror must have been worth a fortune. The red and yellow decorations were not glass, he realised, but some kind of precious stone, silver and jewels, and all so that Eliza could look at herself. You're scared, aren't you? Scared, scared, scared. In a way, Eliza was right, but Conrad refused to admit it. He grabbed the handle 
then slowly raised the face of the mirror to his own face, not knowing what to expect. He had first seen his reflection in the surface of the river. That gave him no true idea of his appearance, or, more importantly, of the way that his eyes appeared. As far as he could tell, they were the same, but it was difficult to be sure when only his right eye could truly see anything. The polished surface of a soldier's shield years ago had been no more help. It served more to distort his features than to define them. Glass itself was a rarity. There was no such thing as a mirror in the tavern, or probably anywhere else in the whole village, except at the manor house. He had only heard the word from Eliza, and her mirror must have been fabricated in some distant land. Conrad looked at himself for the first time. He gasped in surprise, blinking at the young stranger who blinked back at him. The first thing he noticed was the mane of untamed hair, neither fair nor red, but somewhere in between. He had held clumps of his hair in his hands previously, when it grew too long and he had to cut it with his knife. But this was the first time he had seen himself, or anyone, with hair of such colour. He glanced over the top of the mirror and noticed Eliza grinning at him. He raised the mirror to hide her from view, bringing it closer towards his face, towards his eyes. They looked identical, no different, both pupils pale green. But the early morning sun was behind him, the mirror reflecting red into both his dilated irises, and he shifted his position so that he was no longer dazzled by the bright rays of light. As he moved the mirror, as his pupils widened, he saw that one of them became darker, more green, while the other became lighter, yellower, turning into gold. His eyes were different colours. One was gold. One was green. That was what Eliza must have meant by him having strange eyes. But one could see, and one could not. He was holding the mirror in his right hand, and he raised the fingers of his left to his eyes. His image did the same. He touched the skin beneath his left eye, but his reflection did not. It touched the skin below his image's right eye. He frowned. Eliza had been watching this, and she laughed. He caught a glimpse of her reflection as she moved around behind him. She stood on tiptoe and leaned over his right shoulder, and he saw her face by his face. It was different somehow, not an accurate picture of the way she looked. She was like her own twin, whose hair was swept back over her right ear instead of her left. And although she stood to his right, her image was on the left of his image. He saw her reflection smile, watched as her lips mouthed the words that he heard in his right ear. It's a mirror image, Conrad. Left isn't left. Right isn't right. 
I don't look like that, not exactly. And you don't look like that, not exactly. Watch. She moved to his other side, from right to left, but her image switched from the left side of the reflection to its right side. What do you see in the mirror as your left, she explained, is really your right. The image of her eyes met his. And what do you see as your right is really your left. He had one good eye, one blind eye. One of his eyes was gold, one was green. But which was which? He looked away from Eliza's image, instead concentrating on his own reflection, trying to work out what he could see. He saw a young man in his late teens, the stranger who already seemed familiar, who looked perplexed more than worried, and who had eyes of different colours. Conrad could only see properly out of his right eye, and so he gradually closed his left. It was the gold eye that his image slowly shut, although it seemed it was the right one. That was a distortion caused by the glass he now knew. He could not trust the mirror, but he could trust the evidence of his right eye, his green eye. With only one eye open, he could see exactly the same picture in the mirror as he had been able to with both eyes open. That was what he had anticipated. The right eye was his one good eye. He could see nothing with his left, because whenever he closed his right, it was as though he shut both eyes. Almost. See, said Eliza. He saw her. He saw himself. He nodded, and he saw his image nod. He opened his other eye, saw it glint golden. He knew that his eyes were different, although he had never imagined that they would appear different in such a way. At first glance, the green and the gold were not that dissimilar, but, on closer inspection, the difference was readily apparent. Eliza was the only person ever to have mentioned this, which was only to be expected. She was the only person ever to have spoken with him instead of at him, the only person ever to have looked at him long enough to have noticed the apparent difference. Then he closed his right eye, and, as ever, it was like closing them both. He could see nothing, nothing that was happening now. In the darkness there was a brief glimmer of light, faint and distant, if he concentrated, focused his left eye, his golden eye, his blind eye, he could make out an outline. It was an oval, the shape of the mirror that he still held, and within the mirror was the reflection of a face. What he saw, he realized, was the image that he still held in his brain. It was the last thing he had seen, the mirror. Within it, a face staring back at him, both eyes open. Two different eyes, one green, one gold. 
but it was her face of someone else. It was an older man, his face lined and scarred, shadowed and bearded. It was a face that Conrad had never seen before, yet it was a face that he could not fail to recognize. It was his own face. He was staring at himself, as he would be many years from now. He was staring into the future. No! he yelled squeezing both his eyes further shut to dispel the image, then opening them wide, catching a brief glimpse of his own young reflection in the glass, before hurling the mirror as far away from him as possible. He heard the glass shatter, then Eliza crying out in anger and disbelief, felt the blow against the side of his head as the girl hit him as hard as she could with the palm of her hand saw her hurry over to where the mirror had landed, and began picking up the scattered fragments of fractured glass, all the time yelling at him. Conrad was aware of exactly what was going on, but he felt completely removed from it all, as though it were happening at some other time, as though he were remembering, remembering what had happened, or what was yet to happen. Eliza held the unbroken mirror in her lap, and they sat side by side on the riverbank, near to one another, but not as near as they usually sat. It was as though she had just arrived, and was about to show him the silver mirror, that none of the events of several minutes ago had happened, yet. He felt totally confused, his mind and his senses completely mixed up. Past, present, and future seemed inextricably intertwined, and he could not tell which was which. He knew exactly what would happen, but that was because it had already happened. This was now. There would be no repeat. Eliza had shown him the mirror, and he had thrown it away. He preferred not to consider what had occurred in between, when he had stared into the mirror and seen the reflection of himself, the image of his future self. The mirror had broken, but Eliza had found every shard of glass, fitted them all back within the silver frame, then rubbed her hands across the splintered surface, her fingers becoming red with blood as she smoothed away the roughness. All the time, whispering enchantments. Although he was vaguely aware of what she was doing, there had been too much else on Conrad's mind. He had been thinking about his left eye, his golden eye, his blind eye, his blind eye that could see, that could tell him what was going to happen, and that had done so for most of his life. The minutes dragged by while his respiration and heartbeat slowed almost to normal. He felt calmer now, no longer on the verge of panic. Eliza had said nothing to him directly since cursing him for throwing away the mirror. She must have realized that something serious had occurred for Conrad to have behaved in such a manner. She looked down into the mirror either studying her own reflection, or else checking that the glass showed no sign of damage. 
then glanced over at Conrad. Their eyes met for the first time since they had looked at each other's image in the mirror. It was only a joke about your face breaking the glass. I told you that, she said. You didn't have to take me at my word. Too much of a shock, was it? Seeing yourself, she added, and she smiled ironically. He shook his head slowly, put his hands over his eyes and rubbed them while he wondered what to say. What did you see? asked Eliza. He stared at her. She could not have been referring to his own image. How did she know he had seen something strange? Then he realised that she was guessing. His vision was a subject they had never spoken about, no matter how important it was to him. He kept it within himself, partly because he did not understand, partly because he did not want Eliza to know. It was something he could do, a talent he had which she did not possess, and which it seemed no one else did. In a way, it was the one thing that he had of his own. He did not want to share it with her, and he was unsure why. She was his only friend. They ought to have been able to talk about anything and everything. They never discussed her wizardry, however, although she did not mind him knowing of her talents. He glanced at her fingertips. He was unsure whether she had cut herself on the broken glass, or whether the spilled blood was the price for the magic she had expended to repair the mirror. Just as she kept her skills to herself, so it was with what he could do. There was another factor. Even after all this time, he still did not fully trust Eliza. He had no evidence for this belief, and such a notion was beyond any reasoning. She was the one person in the world that he knew, that he had total faith and confidence in, would have done anything for, yet there was an almost infinitesimal trace of suspicion. He had not wanted to open up to her fully, because then she would know everything about him and would have a hold over him. The idea made no sense, he knew, but rationality and feeling could not be reconciled. And it was all to do with his eyes, or one of them. It seemed that his left eye was blind, yet he could still see from it, see not what was happening now, but what would happen. Most of the time there was hardly any difference. His left eye was ahead of his right, ahead of what was actually happening, by a fraction of a second. That was how he had been able to avoid Brandenheimer's boot or his whip. He knew where it would strike an instant before it did, and thus he had been able to avoid the full force of every blow. He noticed Eliza was studying herself in the mirror again. As she did so, she idly licked the blood from her fingers. By now, he was beginning to doubt that there had been any different image in the mirror. It must have been a trick of the light. 
except that there had been no light, because his eyes were shut. Then it must have been a trick of his eyes. He could not possibly have seen his future self. He had never been able to foresee anything further ahead than a minute. He refused to believe it. Therefore, it could not have happened. He would not tell Eliza what he had mistakenly thought he had seen. But he had to say something. I'd never seen my eyes before, he told her. I didn't know they were a different colour. That was what surprised me. I didn't mean to break the mirror. I didn't know glass was so easy to break. She was watching him, and he could tell from her expression that she did not believe him. The best way to convince her was to tell the truth, up until a point. When I close my right eye, he explained, my left eye becomes blind. When my right eye is open, I can see out of my left, but what I see isn't precisely the same. I don't see what is happening, but what will happen. You have the gift of foresight. You can see into the future, Conrad shrugged. I suppose so, but it isn't any great talent, at best. I know what will happen within a few seconds, perhaps even a minute, which means I can act accordingly. That's what happened when we first met. You saw the beast man. I knew it was lurking in the forest. When you rode up, I realised that you didn't know it was there. You couldn't see it like I could. I'd already watched it spring out of the trees and knock you from your horse. Then I saw it happen again, a few moments later. Luckily it didn't kill you with its leap. That was because you warned me. Conrad shrugged. Possibly. Can you see anything now? Nothing. He shook his head. Nothing any different. I mean, I can see you sitting there, that's all. He stared beyond the girl at the forest. There is no danger. So it's danger that you sense. You can see if something dangerous is about to happen, and you can stop it. I can't stop it. I can see what will happen, and I can make the best of it. If there's a wild animal near, I can avoid it. I know which route it will take, and so I choose another path. Eliza was correct. He could see danger. It might be relatively trivial, such as the angle of the stick with which Adolf Brandenheimer was about to thrash him, or it might be far more important. This was what had saved his life so many times in the forest. And sometimes it had almost killed him. He could not rely on his foresight, because he had been let down on two vital occasions— the first was when he had fought with the beastman that had attacked Eliza. It was as if he had suddenly become blind, because he did not know what the creature was going to do next, which way it would strike. His right eye had told him what was happening now, but his left had told him nothing. Everything had become black. The future consisted of an empty void, and he thought he was going to die. 
It appeared that he had seen no future, because there was no future for him to see. He had not died. Instead, it was the beastman that had been killed. In a way, the most frightening aspect of the fight had been his sudden blindness to what was about to happen. The second time was when he had killed the wild boar. The creature had been pounced upon by three pack-wolves, and yet he had no idea that the wolves were in the vicinity. He had almost fallen victim to the three predators. It was danger that extended his range of vision, but too much seemed to overload his senses, making him as vulnerable as anyone else. His foresight could only be measured in seconds, unlike today, when he had seen many years ahead. Eliza was still watching him, waiting for him to continue, to tell her what he had seen in the mirror. He had been confused, astonished at seeing his own reflection for the first time. That was all. He had seen nothing else, because there was nothing to see. If you can only see danger, said Eliza. If you can only see danger, said Eliza. Then you don't know what's going to happen next. Conrad stared at her wondering what she meant. Her face was totally expressionless, and she put the mirror down on the grass behind her. She leaned forward and unfastened one of her sandals, kicking it towards him. It landed by his side. Then she untied the other one and sent that flying through the air at him. Conrad caught the leather sandal, before it could hit his chest. She was wearing a silk blouse and a long velvet skirt. The pale blue blouse was fastened by a series of ribbons. One by one, she slowly undid each of them, alternating her left hand and her right, working her way down from her neck to her waist. The front of her blouse hung loose, and Conrad glimpsed her breasts as she stood up. There was a narrow silver belt around her waist, but it was there purely as an ornament, because her turquoise skirt was secured by a bow at the hip. She undid the bow. The garment consisted of a single piece of fabric that was wrapped twice around the lower half of her body, and Eliza began to unwrap it. Facing him, she gradually unfolded her skirt until her left leg was bare from waist to ankle. Her left hand rested on her hip, holding both edges of the garment. Then she lifted her hand, letting it fall free. As she did so, she spun around until her back was to him. She glanced at Conrad over her shoulder. All she wore was her blue blouse, which she slowly peeled down over her arms and allowed to drop to the ground. He had seen her naked many times before, but never like this. She had always pulled off her clothes as quickly as possible, never so teasingly. Very slowly, she turned to face him 
All she wore was her jewellery, the silver necklace and belt, and the matching bracelets about her wrists and ankles. Otherwise, she was completely nude. She stood with her hands on her hips, her legs astride. What always amazed Conrad was how pale Eliza's long-limbed body was. Apart from the jet black of her hair and the soft pink of her nipples, her body was completely white. He licked at his dry lips as he gazed at the girl. "'You want to go for a swim?' he said. She shook her head. She raised her right hand, beckoning to him with her index finger. Conrad obeyed. He stood up and walked forward, stopping in front of her. Eliza lifted her other hand, and she tugged at Conrad's ragged shirt. It came off easily, except that the sleeve became caught on his right wrist because he was still holding her leather sandal. Eliza took the sandal, cast it aside, pulled the shirt free, then reached for the string that held up his old breeches. He stood a foot apart, staring into each other's eyes. Eliza's were so dark that it was hard to tell where the pupil became the iris. Conrad's breeches dropped around his ankles. He was even more naked than Eliza. He wore no silver. Are you sure you don't want to go for a swim? He managed to ask. Eliza's face showed the first flicker of movement. She smiled for a moment. There's something else I want, she said, and she leaned towards him. Conrad gasped in surprise and pleasure. They'd often touched each other before, but only by accident or in play. This was completely different. As she held him, he moved slightly nearer, and he lifted his hands to Eliza's breasts. As he gently caressed them, he remembered the first time he had touched her soft female flesh. A few years ago, she had asked him to teach her archery. He had stood behind her, showing her how to hold the bow and arrow. While he did, her budding breasts had pushed against his arms. He had rubbed himself against her, hoping she would not notice, but she had, and when he drew away, she had pressed herself up against him, urging him to hold her tighter. Since then, they had come into physical contact many times, either clothed or nude. Sometimes it had been in fun, but lately such encounters had become more serious. They kissed. They had kissed before, although never like this. Until now, their lips had merely brushed lightly together when they said farewell. But suddenly... Their mouths were locked eagerly together. Eliza's lips parted, and he felt her wet tongue against his lips. Conrad opened his mouth, his own tongue darting to meet hers. Their bodies were pressed as close as their lips. They were in contact from head to toe, trying to hold each other even nearer. 
Eliza's naked body felt warmer than the heat from the sun, and Conrad was unable to tell if it was her racing heartbeat that he could feel, or his own. Simultaneously, they both pulled away, panting for breath. They gazed at each other for several seconds. There was no need for words. They both smiled, then sank down to the ground. Eliza lay upon her satin cloak, and Conrad lay upon her. They melted together, becoming as one. Conrad gazed up at the clear blue sky. Eliza was stretched out on her side, watching him. He chewed a stalk of grass and tried not to smile. Eliza picked up the mirror and caught the reflection of the sun, shining it in Conrad's eyes. He put his hand in front of his face, trying to block out the dazzling light, and he turned to look at her. He could not see her very well because of the brightness of the mirror, but it seemed that she was staring at him with an expression he did not recognize. Then he noticed that it was more than her expression which was unfamiliar, just as Conrad had seemed to see his older self in the mirror a while ago for an instant it was as if he were observing another Eliza. No longer a girl, she had become a woman. Her mischievous features were twisted, exaggerated, into a malevolent stare. And he saw more than that, worse than that. He looked away immediately, squeezing his eyes tightly shut. But it was too late. Absolute love had turned to total hatred. The paradise of the present had become tomorrow's hell. Conrad did not need his eyes to know the future, did not need a silvered mirror to foresee what would be. Even without them, he was aware that his only friend would some day betray him, and cause his ultimate destruction. Chapter 4 The one certainty in life was ultimate death, and in this the brutal invaders would not be disappointed. They lived for death, and they must die. Today, everyone and everything must die. The victors would themselves become victims when ally turned upon ally. There would be no mistakes. As there had been two and a half thousand years ago, that day there was a survivor, and because of this one oversight, the inevitable ascendancy of chaos had been delayed. The one who had escaped was named Sigmar. Sigmar Heldenhammer, who had founded the Empire. The days of summer were longer than those of winter, which meant that Conrad worked more hours at this time of year. In winter, he was usually up before the sun because he needed all the time there was. In summer, he sometimes slept on a few extra minutes. As ever, he spent his nights in one of the barns, behind the inn, 
lying among the straw which would become the fodder for the livestock. At least he did not have to eat grass and hay. It was about the only thing he did not share with the animals. He lay still for a while, staring up through the cracks in the roof, watching as the sky lightened. He was thinking about what Eliza had told him last year, about her father being worried that the black bow and arrows had gone missing. She had not mentioned this since, and he was unsure what had reminded him of the subject. He yawned and sat up, gazing over to the far side of the barn, to where he kept the quiver and arrows. It was several weeks since he had checked them. He clambered down from the loft, pulled the ladder away, and set it up against the opposite wall. Then he climbed again, up into the rafters, hauled himself onto one of the beams, and worked his way along to the strut where the quiver was tied. It was still in the same piece of linen in which it had been wrapped when Eliza gave it to him, all those years ago. He sat down, balancing himself on the beam, and loosened the package from its hiding place. As he untied the final knot, he paused, listening, seeing. There was a rider approaching. Eliza? He caught a glimpse of her also, a distant vision, but the first rider was someone else. A stranger. A dangerous stranger. There had to be great danger for Conrad to have become aware of the newcomer, and for him also to have become conscious of Eliza's whereabouts. She was about to leave the grounds of the manor house, to head across the bridge to meet up with Conrad. But if she came this way, as she must, she would instead encounter the other rider. Without needing to think, Conrad had already acted. He was down the ladder, rushing across the barn and out of the side door. He did not need to look around to know that the stranger was less than a hundred yards away, approaching the well in the central square. Conrad sprinted through the empty village, along the cobbled streets which led up to the manor. He had not seen the horseman intercept Eliza. It was only an assumption. But he was between them now. He could head off the girl, and the two riders would not meet. He heard hooves on the cobbles. They were ahead of him. Eliza's horse. He had not heard the stranger's horse yet. He realized the newcomer was too far away to be heard, still too far away to be seen with normal vision. Eliza was just ahead of him, reaching the first of the cottages at the bend of the incline. He dashed around the corner, seeing her, really seeing her for the first time. She reined in her mount as soon as she noticed him. Back! he called, trying not to shout too loud in case the intruder should hear. What is it? He grabbed her horse's bridle with his left hand, and for the first time he noticed that he was still carrying the linen bundle which contained the quiver and five black arrows. He tugged at the animal's head, trying to turn it. You've got to get out of sight, he warned, his breath coming in short bursts. He looked back over his shoulder and saw nothing. He saw the curve in the street, the houses on either side, 
The rider was not in view yet, and should not have been for several seconds, but Conrad was unable to tell where the horseman would be when he appeared. It was as if he had vanished. He had not. That was impossible. But this was further evidence of the extreme danger that the intruder presented. Like the time with the beast-man, the time with the pack of wolves, the two previous occasions when Conrad's talent had deserted him. Come on! Eliza did not question him or argue. She recognised the look of anxiety in his face. She held out her hand, reaching down to him. Conrad took it, pulling himself up behind her. She spun the horse, kicking her heels into its flanks. They galloped up the hill towards the walls of the manor. The shod hooves seemed very noisy in the still morning air. Conrad glanced anxiously back. Yet there was still nothing to be seen, nothing to be heard, no sign that anything was amiss. He tried to picture what he had seen. A single rider, the dawn sun glittering from the bronze armour which completely covered him. Even the horse was totally hidden by its own matching armour. Eliza's steed reached the manor. The drawbridge was down, the wooden gate stood open and they rode in. The manor was not designed as a fortress. The bridge was little more than an ornament. Even if it could have been raised, the narrow moat would provide little obstacle to any determined attackers. The gates could easily have been battered down, the walls breached. Conrad had never been inside the grounds of the residence before. It was forbidden territory to most of the peasants. At the moment, he preferred to be there than to be outside. He leapt from the back of the horse, then ran behind one of the gates, while Eliza dismounted and tied up her horse out of sight. The rider was finally in view, and hurriedly coming up the centre of the narrow road towards the manor, his mount's hooves made not a sound upon the cobbles. He rode closer and closer, in total silence. It was as if the whole world had become quiet. There was nothing to be heard anywhere in the village. No dog barked. No animal in any of the barns made a sound. Beyond the village there was not even the cry of a bird or a wild beast in the distant forest. "'Who is he?' whispered Eliza by his side. "'I don't know.' He kept his voice as low as hers. The night was too far away to hear them, but it would have seemed unnatural to break the eerie silence. "'He's like a ghost,' Conrad shivered. She was exactly right, he realised. It was as if both rider and horse were dead, because surely no living creature could move with such absolute quiet. He had five arrows, but no bow. Even with a bow, he would not have been tempted to shoot at the rider. His extra sight had sensed danger, but what use was an arrow against a supernatural entity? Should I call my father? Summon the guards? Conrad shook his head. That would be futile. As the horseman came closer, 
Conrad could see more detail. Rider and steed were clad in matching plated armour, all of burnished bronze. The armour was elaborately wrought, the helmet patterned with intricate designs. There was the narrowest slit in the visor to give vision for the eyes within, if there were any eyes within. It seemed that he was mounted upon some fantastic beast, whose carapace was of shining metal. The head of the horse, if such it was, could any horse carry the weight of so much metal, as well as its armoured rider, the animal's head, was protected by a helmet from which protruded two long spikes just above the eye-slot. Similarly, a double spike emerged from the crown of the knight's helmet, making the wearer also resemble some horned beast. There were more spikes at the knuckles and knees, toes and elbows. The armour was damaged in a few places, dented and buckled, showing signs of previous combat. The rider carried a circular shield, bronzed with a heavy central spike. A sword hung at his side, bronze-handled, scabbarded in bronze. He also carried a long war-lance, also of bronze, held vertically in one gauntleted and spiked fist. "'What does he want?' asked Eliza. The rider's head had been slowly turning from side to side as he approached the manor, not out of caution, because it seemed that he had nothing to fear, but because he appeared to be taking in every detail of his surroundings. He halted on the other side of the drawbridge, and he looked directly at where Conrad and Eliza were hiding. He could not possibly see them, but Conrad felt the stranger's eyes on him, and it seemed as though he had come here for Conrad. That was the sole reason for his incursion. "'I'm not frightened of him,' said Eliza. There was no bravado in her voice. She meant exactly what she said, which made Conrad feel even more nervous. She stepped forward, and he hurriedly grabbed hold of her, pulling her back behind the ancient wooden door. "'I want to talk to him,' she protested. He put his hand over her mouth to silence her. "'But he doesn't want to talk to us.' That isn't why he's here. She shook her head free. How do you know? You don't know anything. You're just a stupid peasant. He stared at her. Not because of what she had said. Her words meant nothing. But for a moment, he had caught a distant glimpse within her dark eyes. A glimpse beyond her anger. Beyond this moment. He saw... He saw death, real death, Eliza's death. For an instant, less than the blink of an eye, he had witnessed Eliza totally devoid of life, robbed of the essence of being. It was more than death, it was worse than death. It was a descent into the deepest abyss of ultimate despair and depravity. Involuntarily, he loosened his grip. 
It was as though he did not wish to touch Eliza for fear of contaminating himself, that he might also become a victim. He closed both his eyes, hoping to erase all memory of the brief but absolutely horrifying image, but knowing even now that he could never succeed. The vision might fade with time, but it would live with him forever. The memory would live on. But Eliza would not. She had sprung away and into the open, and he heard her call out, What do you want? Who are you looking for? Conrad rushed after Eliza, drawing his knife to protect her from the rider. It was a futile gesture he knew. He could not save the girl from the night as easily as he had rescued her from the beastman so many years ago. Even as he leapt out, he saw that he was not needed. The stranger had turned and was riding slowly back down the hill. The armour rattled and squeaked. The hooves clattered on the cobbles. A pile of dung lay on the ground where the horse had stood. Horse and mount were not ghosts, thought Conrad, as he watched them vanish through the deserted village. Then he turned to look at Eliza. The stranger was not dead. But Eliza soon would be. He was leaving. Conrad had no idea where he could go, but he could not stay in the village any longer. He had been considering the idea for some time, prompted by various reasons. He was going because he could no longer stay, and today's events were the deciding factor. It was very rare for a stranger to arrive in the village. It was not on any trading route or major highway. Even the river was not navigable. It was too narrow and treacherous. Nobody ever passed through. The only people who arrived came solely to visit the village itself, and there were very few of them. Today all that seemed to have changed. The night was like no visitor, and he had not stayed. After riding through the village, as if conducting a tour of inspection, the horseman had withdrawn. It seemed as though his arrival and departure had gone completely unnoticed, except by Conrad and Eliza. Conrad had believed that everyone in the village was hiding away from the stranger, and he expected they would appear once the bronze knight had gone. Instead, the morning was no different from any other. It was no different for the rest of the village, but very different for Conrad. For the first time that he could remember, he did not set off for the forest to collect firewood for the inn, because he would never return there again. By chance he had already collected the quiver and five arrows. But was it chance? It was the arrival of the stranger which had caused him to keep hold of the linen bundle, and it was the arrival of the stranger that had finally spurred him to quit the village. The quiver and arrows were almost all he owned, all he needed. The few coins he had been given or found over the years were no longer buried near the tavern. He had changed their hiding place, and they were now tied up, under the wooden bridge, along with his bow 
and the other arrows that Eliza had given him. You shouldn't be here, Eliza had said, once the knight had disappeared from their sight. She looked back, anxiously gazing towards the manor house. There was no sign of anyone else. He had never expected that the place would be like this. He had imagined there would be armed guards posted on the walls, at the gates, that whenever Eliza came to meet him, she somehow escaped via a secret passage. Perhaps sentries always patrolled the grounds, on every day except this. Today, like the villagers, they were all hidden away in fear of the strange horsemen. Conrad did not really know. He knew very little about Wilhelm Castring and where he lived, and Eliza rarely spoke about her father or her home. Castring was the most important person in the whole village, and so Conrad had assumed that the manor house would be like a fortress. Until today, he had only seen the house in its walled grounds at a distance. It was the largest building he had ever seen, built totally out of stone. Even the roof was tiled, not thatched like most of the village. There were several smaller buildings within the grounds of the manor, and even the least of them was built of brick, far more substantial than most of the other village constructions. "'Then I'll go,' Conrad replied. He had dropped his quiver when he had let go of Eliza a few minutes previously, and now he was picking up the linen-wrapped bundle. He noticed she was watching him. "'Remember this?' he asked. She nodded. "'My father will kill you if he knows you have it.' "'How will he know?' Conrad looked at her. She appeared no different from the way she always had, or almost always had. A few minutes ago he had visualised her as being dead, or worse than dead. Last year, he remembered, his mind had filled with a vision of how she would appear when she was older, and when she would betray him. The two images were incompatible. Eliza must either die or grow older. She could not do both. In either case, she could betray him, but her treachery would be over nothing so trivial as a black quiver and a few arrows with a strange gold emblem. Conrad could trust no one, nothing, not even his own perceptions. That was why he must leave, although by leaving... He could not avoid his own senses. Eliza did not reply, and Conrad turned away. He walked through the wooden gates over the drawbridge and started to make his way down towards the village. The main street would lead him to the bridge, then across the river. There was a route beyond the bridge through the forest. It was only a dirt track, but it must lead somewhere. He did not look back. A few seconds later, there was no need, because he heard Eliza's horse following. She rode far enough behind so that it did not appear they were together, although Conrad was unsure whether they were together or not. The village was beginning to come alive at last, doors and windows opening, people moving around. Barn doors stood ajar, and animals were being herded out into the fields. Now that it was daytime, there was less danger from the predators that lurked within the woods. Guarded by the herdsmen, the cattle and the sheep could feed in relative safety. 
Conrad passed near to the tavern, but the building was still and silent. The inn was the last place in the village to sleep at night, the last to blow out the candles and oil lamps, and it was always the last to awaken each morning. When he reached the bridge over the river, he clambered beneath and retrieved his bow, his arrows, his money. They reached the place where they usually met, and Eliza dismounted, spreading her latest cloak on the ground. Conrad sat down nearby. There was only one reason for him to share Eliza's cloak, and this was not the day for that. "'I've no food for you,' she said. "'The cook has disappeared. No one has seen him since yesterday.' My father is very angry and has been complaining ever since about the awful meals that he's been served. Conrad had often seen the cook buying provisions in the village. He was an odd-looking person, very small and round. It was only recently that Conrad had discovered why he looked so strange. He was a halfling, the only non-human in the village. Who was he? Eliza asked after a while and it was obvious she was not referring to the cook at the manor-house. "'That's what I was going to ask you. "'Perhaps we would know the answer if you'd let me speak to him.' "'You think you'd have been given a reply?' Eliza shrugged. "'I didn't mean what I said, about you being a stupid peasant.' He glanced at her, and their eyes met for the first time since they had left the manor-house. Her eyes were as dark and enigmatic as ever, but they sparkled with life, not death. Even if you are, she added. He grabbed her foot, pulled, and she fell onto her back. They both laughed, and suddenly all the tension between them was gone. They were friends again, the way they usually were. Eliza sat up, then said, I'm getting married. What? You heard. I'm getting married. I've known for a while, but I didn't mention it before because I didn't want to think about it. Who are you marrying? Someone my father knows. He lives in Furlangen. He owns Furlangen. Conrad had heard the name. Furlangen was the nearest town, or so he believed but he was not sure how far away it was, or in what direction it lay. So, Eliza added, it looks as though I'll be seeing some of the world at last. He was sure she suspected he planned to leave, because it was a subject that she had often mentioned. She had frequently urged him to go, saying that if she were in his position, she would have quit the village without hesitation. He had no family, she often said, no reason to stay. He owed nobody anything. Why did he not simply leave? If she were a man, she would have gone long ago. But it was different for her because she was a girl, she argued, and because of who she was. Now that he intended to take Eliza's advice, he was unsure whether or not to tell her. Having made up his mind to go, he did not want her to dissuade him. She had suggested the idea, when there was no likelihood that he would depart. In a way, it was like she was trying to foist her own ambitions upon Conrad. 
but he knew how changeable she could be, and how persuasive. Have you met him? Conrad asked. She shook her head. Do you know anything about him? He's old, nearly forty, but he's rich. Very rich, she shrugged. A girl can't have everything. She looked away, and more quietly added, A girl can't have anything. Do you want to marry him? She looked at Conrad. Does the sun have to rise every day? That's what it does. It can do nothing else. I have to marry Otto Kreishmir. I can do nothing else. Do you want to? What I want has nothing to do with it. That isn't fair. Eliza smiled. Then she laughed, laughed out loud for almost a minute, until she was finally able to control herself. She used her silk scarf to wipe the tears from the corners of her eyes. Conrad could not tell whether they were tears of laughter or sadness. Fair, she said. You talk to me about fairness. What about your life? Has that been fair? Has it? Nothing is fair, Conrad. There is no such thing. You should know that. I have no complaints. How long is it? Since you saved my life? Five years? Nearly six? Maybe that was when my life should have ended. That was my destiny. Every day since then has been extra. I have no complaints. Even if I died tomorrow, I have been grateful for every extra day. Thanks to you. As she spoke, she took hold of Conrad's hand, and for the first time ever, her fingers were cold, icy cold, as if she were already dead. What's wrong? she asked, staring at him. Nothing, he answered, squeezing her cold hand. He was lying, and they both knew it. He had thought of asking her to go with him. It would be less of a wrench if they fled together, because he would be taking the only thing that he cared about, the only thing that he did not want to leave. But paradoxically, she was also the major reason that he must go. He was not simply leaving in order to escape the village. He was leaving to escape Eliza. He could not pretend he had not experienced the visions that he had seen Leaving with her could not change what he had witnessed, could not save her. Perhaps Eliza was correct. She had been destined to die. Saving her from the beastman had extended her allotted span of life. That was all. One's fate could not be avoided. I don't know why, but I had a strange feeling that the rider we saw was my husband-to-be. Eliza said suddenly. I think that's why I wanted to talk to him. It was as though he was someone I knew, or would know. I had this silly idea that he had come to carry me away on his horse, to abduct me before the wedding. But you said he was like a ghost. 
Well, someone nearly forty is nearly dead, she forced a laugh, and it was a laugh that sounded forced. Conrad was thinking about the rider. Eliza had been correct. At first, he did seem like a ghost, riding silently through the village on his phantom horse, until his mount had proved to be only physical. He and Eliza must have been mistaken. It was their imaginations which had invested the bronze knight with spectral abilities. Everything had not really become silent, all sounds totally frozen. It was only that they were too terrified to hear any noise. At least, that was what Conrad preferred to think. The horseman was a rare visitor from the world beyond the village, the world into which Conrad soon intended to venture. He could not be so dramatically different, that beyond the safety of the valley, life was not as simple and straightforward as it was within the village and its environs. "'So who was he?' asked Eliza. "'Who knows? Maybe he was lost. No one comes here without a reason. If he was lost, that must have been his reason.' Eliza was looking at him, unconvinced. Conrad continued. "'He rode to the head of the valley, up to the manor, realised that he couldn't get through, then rode back the way he'd come.' Conrad could not persuade himself and so he doubted that Eliza believed his reasoning. She glanced at the sun. Although it had only risen within the last hour, already it was burning fiercely in the cloudless sky. She unfastened the buttons at the top of her blouse. "'Do you know what it is tomorrow?' she asked. Even after all these years, he could never get used to the way she changed the subject so frequently." The days made very little difference to him. Sometimes he did not even know what month it was. Festag, he guessed. I didn't mean the day of the week, but you're wrong. It's Bacatag. It's the 18th of Sigmazite, the first day of summer. Oh, I can tell that doesn't seem important to you. Am I right? Conrad gestured widely and wildly with both arms, as if to encompass the whole of the world. "'But it's summer already,' he said. "'It's been hot for weeks.' "'How could anyone say when summer started? "'As if it began on exactly the same day each year. "'People tried to impose their wills upon the seasons, "'but they were never successful. "'Sometimes it was hotter in spring than summer, "'colder in autumn than winter.' Nature refused to be tamed. The climate could not be confined into neat sections, the way that different crops could be grown in different fields. Eliza shook her head despairingly, as if Conrad could not be reasoned with. Much more importantly, she said, tomorrow is the holy day of Sigma. Oh, he said again. He had heard the name of Sigmar many times in his life. At first, it was just a name, used as an oath by the men at the inn. By Sigmar, they would swear. It meant nothing to Conrad. Later, 
he came to know that the strange building at the very heart of the village was a temple to Sigmar. Even later, he heard something about how Sigmar had founded the empire, but he had not paid much attention. He had not even heard of the empire, had no idea where it could be. He had finally learned from Eliza that the village was a part of the empire. Eliza was the source of most of his information. Everyone in the whole village goes to the temple tomorrow, Eliza said, rich and poor. They all stand side by side in worship and praise. Everyone except you, Conrad. Why? Don't you believe Sigmar is a god? Conrad shrugged. What everyone else in the village did was no concern of his. The Brandenheimers had never taken him to the temple when he was young, and he had never given the matter much thought. Or is it because you worship someone else? Eliza continued. Ulrich? Or, Eliza pressed on, do you worship the other gods? The dark gods? Who? demanded Conrad impatiently. What are you talking about? I don't know, she admitted. I've sometimes overheard my father talking about other gods. I can't remember their names, but I could tell it was something he was reluctant to mention, as though he was frightened. The only time I've ever heard him scared like that was when he asked about the weapons I gave you. She bit her lower lip as she remembered. I thought you might know about the dark gods. I don't even know about Sigmar, so why ask me? I'm only a stupid peasant, remember? This time it was Eliza who seized Conrad's leg, pulling quickly and sending him sprawling. As he sat up, she stood. So you won't be at the temple tomorrow? she asked. No, he replied, as he rose to his feet. I must be going, said Eliza. She stood by her horse, and Conrad cupped his hands. They looked at one another, Eliza's gaze moving from one of Conrad's eyes to the other. It was a long time since she had done that. Then she stepped into his interwoven fingers, and he helped her into the saddle. They looked at one another. They said nothing, because there was nothing to say. Both knew they would never see each other again. Eliza must have believed that the reason was because Conrad was going to leave. But Conrad knew it was because she was going to die. They kept looking silently at each other. Words would not have been enough. Eliza smiled briefly. Conrad nodded slightly. It was their only goodbye. He watched her ride away, and he followed at a distance for a while, keeping her in sight until she crossed the bridge and entered the village. She did not look back.
We've talked before about the general brief that was given to the writers of the Warhammer Books project, that they should write for a reader that is an intelligent 18-year-old. And we have talked about the fact that this was interpreted by some writers as an invitation to write a story about an 18-year-old. These stories, I usually look a bit askance at, as it is the format for some of the very worst writing that the series produced. Your Hammer of the Stars and your Polg's Carnivals all emerge from this reading of the brief. Although, as was pointed out to me in the comments when I brought this up in a previous commentary, it is also a brief that fits my favourite short stories like Warped Stars and The Other. It was an approach to the brief that David Ferring, the pen name of the sci-fi writer David Garnett, explicitly took on during his development of the Conrad trilogy. Ferring told Steve Baxter that his intent was to create a protagonist that knows nothing about the world in which he lives, and thus can act as a conduit for the audience to find out about the setting alongside him. You'll note that Conrad doesn't even know what the Empire is, so every single aspect of the setting is new to him. One wonders if similar ideas are being batted around as the ideas for the Warhammer TV show are worked on. I have my moments when I think that the opening of Warped Stars, with its, with its scene of brutal theocratic rule viewed by an intelligent teenager, is perhaps one of the best introductions to the precepts of the Warhammer universe that has ever been written. Conrad certainly gives us a very clear audience surrogate opening of a hero's journey style character. However, one can't help wonder if this gets pushed a little too far. Having Luke say, The Force, and then it be explained to him is one thing, but here we get Conrad saying, A mirror, and having a name, with the same level of curiosity. It reminds me of computer games where you start at absolute rock bottom. There was that MMO, Rust, where you start out entirely naked and devoid of equipment, and I think it reminded me of that. I mean, sure, it's good to find out about the setting at the same time as your protagonist, but Conrad goes beyond having been locked in the cupboard under the stairs and doesn't know anything about the immediate environment he inhabits at the start of the story, let alone the world beyond it. Having said that, what I really liked is the fact that the beastmen of the forests are something that Conrad knows about, even if he doesn't know anything about the human world. There is something of the idea of Conrad as the, the noble savage, living in a state of nature in the woods. You know, that classical liberal idea of mankind uncorrupted by the effects of society. But the problem with nature the wild in the old world, is that chaos is also present there. The corruption is just out there waiting for him. It reminds me of post-apocalyptic stories, where the character is born into the post-apocalyptic world and doesn't really have a sense of what has brought the world to that point, but still has a kind of sense of the unnaturalness of the things produced by that apocalyptic event. But we are quite low on chaos so far, aren't we? If we compare this point in the story to something like Drakenfels, we had had all of the events of the prologue and all of the Munson Keep stuff by this point in the page count. 
Even Zaragoz, with its quite lengthy framing device, had produced more innocent by this point in the story. I think that the reason for this is that it seems like Conrad was commissioned from the get-go as a trilogy, so the tempo of the story is sort of set at 700 pages rather than the 220-odds of this initial story. So we get a very slow process of reflection on what's up with his eyes and Conrad exploring all of that, which could probably have been resolved a lot more quickly if there was time pressure on the story. I'm not sure how Ferring slash Garnet landed a trilogy off the bat. Yeoman slash Newman and Craig slash Stableford both had to write audition pieces that would go on to appear as their short stories in Ignorant Armies before they were handed their novels. But the Ferring contribution seemed to have been purely the three Conrad stories. It is possible that as a more experienced writer, and the man who was in the process of reviving the anthology magazine that had once been edited by Moorcock, New Worlds, David Pringle didn't feel confident asking Garnet to produce an interview piece to get the gig. As I've worked on this podcast, I've had a lot of people express their excitement to me for when we will get to Conrad. Unlike most of these other stories, I never really encountered this story at the time that it was written, and I've been trying to approach the series with the most open of minds. The stories will go on to rattle around the Warhammer world with an exploratory adventurousness and range of foes that we don't see in any of the other novels, and I think that perhaps this reflection of what it feels like to be finding out about the Warhammer world through reading game books and White Dwarf as a 13-year-old is what makes the stories so fondly remembered. It's not quite kicked into gear yet, though and has had a lot more descriptions of nude swimming and nipple colour than any of the other stories we've read, which also might explain why it's burnt into everyone's 13-year-old memories. Something I want us to keep track of, though, is the portrayal of Sigmar. We saw in Drakenfels that the reality of Sigmar as tangible protector of the Empire generates events that are slightly out of keeping with some of the setting's more bleak interpretations, and you can see that we are revving up here to deal with some similar ideas, even this early on in this story. How Sigmar is portrayed in this series is something I think we should come back to and explore in more detail as it's developed in the future. I think I'm going to hold off on an in-depth discussion of Conrad's future sight and danger sense for the moment as well. Conrad. Two and a half hours in, there hasn't really been enough story to pass judgment on yet. This is the first podcast I've released since the death of Brian Ansell, and considering this podcast is largely a peon to the fiction produced under his watch... I wanted to say a few words about him and his contribution to Warhammer. I was always aware that Ansel had a sharp business mind. A while back, my main point of reference for him would be him moving White Dwarf to Nottingham and making it an in-house magazine. So I've been incredibly grateful to works like Dice Men, Talking Miniatures and the interviews of Film Deg and Jordan Sorcery that have allowed us to get a sense of what his contributions were. I never knew the man, so I'm cautious of commenting on him as a person. But I will say the aggregate of what I have read about him seems to suggest that he is someone who valued creativity. 
It sounds like he also had very high standards for creatives he worked with and wasn't quick to praise them, but it certainly seems like he thought that conceptual design, world-building, and character design were important, and he kept this work separate from the business side of the job as a result. So much of what has been perpetually central to the settings that Games Workshop produces models for were conceived of under Ansel's watch, and has survived nearly almost 40 years remarkably unaltered. And I am grateful that that work happened. Thank you so much, Mr. Ansel. Godspeed. Speaking of gratitude, I'd also like to say thanks to Clem, from the Crown of Command Discord, who has drawn the spiffy new podcast logo. It looks great, and Clem is great. Sorry that he had to play second news story to a Brian Ansel obituary, though. Please feel free to comment on the show in the posts in the Old Hammer, Rogue Trader, or Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay First Edition Facebook groups, or to leave a review if you are so inclined. Please tell friends if this is the type of thing that might interest them. You can also follow me on Twitter, where I post at at Lewis Kernow about, well, history, this podcast, RPGs, miniatures, and Turnip28. You can now also find accounts for the Old Hammer Fiction podcast on Blue Sky and Instagram. Next time, our hero meets his mentor in part two of Conrad. <laughs>